People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Chade Meng Tan, known informally as Meng, is a former software engineer and motivator formerly at Google, known especially for greeting celebrities who visit the Google campus. Meng is also an international best-selling author, thought leader, and philanthropist. He retired from Google as its jolly good fellow at the age of 45. He is the co-chair of One Billion Acts of Peace, which has been nominated eight times for the Nobel Peace Prize. He is also adjunct professor at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy in the National University of Singapore and a graduate from Nanyang Technological University, also in Singapore. Please welcome Meng to HealthGig. Welcome, Meng. Oh, thank you so much for having me. We're just so happy you're here. And we just wanted to start, if you don't mind, right at the very beginning of your life. If you could Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about your childhood, where you grew up and all of that. I was born in Singapore. When I was born in Singapore, uh, it was a third world country. (laughs) Unemployment was at 25% and everybody was poor. And by the time I turned 18, Singapore was a first world country. Like literally a single generation. It transformed from third world to first world. I was known to be, I was supposed to be very smart. <laughs> my IQ was measured at 156. Uh, wow. My mom said I learned to read at 18 months. And then when I was 12, I taught myself to program a computer. When I was 15, I won my first national award in programming. When I was 17, I was national champion or something like that. <laughs> and yeah, so that's my growing up. <laughs> wow. wow. You learned to read at 18 months? Uh, that's what mom says. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned that you won the National Programming Award when you were 17. What happened next? I joined the army. All of us in Singapore, all the boys, we had to serve in the army for like two and a half years. And then I went to college in Singapore. And later on, I went to Santa Barbara, uh, University of California, Santa Barbara. The joke is I went for the beach and I didn't mind the graduate degree. <laughs> <laughs> really? And then how did you find your way to Google? I was kind of looking for a job. <laughs> My wife kind of got pregnant, so I, I needed money. <laughs> and that was like the year 2000. And it's actually true that anybody with powers can get a job in Silicon Valley. I mean, a powers and engineering degree. Uh, I, I happen to have both. Somebody made a joke. Somebody said, if you put your resume out, right, you can get a phone call in five minutes. And, and I laughed. So I put my resume out. And then we timed. Like, just as a joke, right? so just, we just sat there and timed. And I literally got a response in five minutes. And my professor rated me at that time. He rated me as the best master student he's ever had. Given that I was my national champion and so on, it was like I could get a job anywhere. And I decided to pick this small startup company called Google. And the reason was I went to their interview and they had the toughest interview. And I made a decision. I, I didn't want to be the smartest kid in the room because if I'm the smartest kid, I don't learn anything. I wanted to optimize learning. So I just went to the company with the toughest interview, whichever one it was, because the kids there are, are presumably smarter than me. And it just happened to be Google. Wow. And you were what number employee at Google? Uh, 107. It kind of got delayed because the immigration processing took some time. And then tell us what happened that one day, how everything changed for you. There was a story I tell a lot, which is the year was 2003 and it was summer. And I was taking a walk outside the Google campus and I suddenly had the moment of clarity. I knew what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, which was to create the conditions for world peace in my lifetime. 
and to do that by scaling inner peace, inner joy and compassion worldwide. And so uh, that moment guided me uh, ever since. However, there was something else that happened just before that. So just before it, I had a sudden realization. There's a part of my grow up that I didn't tell you about, which was I was depressed. So despite all my successes, I was really unhappy. I was so unhappy that there were times I was thinking about us ending it all. When I was 21, I became Buddhist and I found meditation. By 2003, I was a completely different person. So I was taking a walk and suddenly I realized something. Suddenly I realized I was not in pain. I said, wait a minute, there was a time in my life I was always in pain. And now it's like, I'm never in pain. <laughs> it's like something huge shifted. And I knew precisely what it was. It was my meditation practice. I told myself, wait a minute, if I can do it, <laughs> anybody can do it. And if everybody does it, it creates a condition for world peace. And I said, okay, that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. In my lifetime, this, I'll make this happen. Can you talk to us about emotional intelligence and what is it? I figured the way to create the conditions for world peace is to scale inner peace, inner joy and compassion worldwide. That leaves the question of how. <laughs> I kind of knew how. It was to align goodness, which is peace, joy, compassion, align goodness with success and profits. Because if I were to go around the world talking about goodness, like people will applaud and then nothing will change. But if I were to say, okay, this is how you become successful, this is how you become profitable, with peace, joy, and compassion being unavoidable as side effects, as a byproduct, then they will spread. Then with the conditions for world peace. And then that leaves the question of how. And back then in like all three-ish, I figured out how emotional intelligence. Because back then, EI, people got EI, but they didn't get mindfulness. So I said, okay, if I were to create a curriculum for emotional intelligence based on mindfulness, everybody knows this will lead to their success. And then I can train them in a way where, you know, peace, joy, and compassion is scalable. So what is emotional intelligence? It is the ability to monitor one's own and others' feelings and emotions to discriminate among them and to use this information to guide one's thinking and actions. So that's a scientific definition. Another definition, simpler, emotional intelligence is a collection of emotional skills. And that is a powerful definition because all skills are trainable. Therefore, emotional intelligence must be trainable. Based on our experience, we know that it is true. And so emotions are separate from who we are. Is that right? Kind of, in a way. That is a very important realization that you get early on in this training. And for some people, it's life-changing. The first transformation is the shift from existential to experiential. So yeah, what does that mean? So let's say I get angry or I get sad. And usually we think of this in existential terms. We say, I am angry, I am sad, I am happy. So that emotion is me, I am. So the shift is going from I am sad to I am experiencing sadness. It sounds like a very small, it sounds like it makes no difference, but it makes a huge difference in one way. It opens up something we call the big sky mind. It is that realization that the mind is like the sky and emotions are like clouds in the sky. So fundamentally, the clouds are not the sky. And in the same way, my emotions are not me. My thoughts are not me. And for somebody in the grasp of depression, aspiring towards suicide, that one insight is life-changing. You know, he suddenly realized, wait a minute, all these things I'm feeling, they are not me. They're simply phenomenon in my mind. And that's the first break out of depression. It's very powerful. But there's one more shift. <laughs> it gets even better. The shift from experiential to physiological. 
which is going from I am angry to I'm experiencing anger to I'm experiencing anger in my body. It's just seen as a bodily phenomenon. And therefore, it's something you can manage and you can master over. Is that what happened to you that day? You said that you didn't feel pain anymore and that's because this shift happened? Uh, more than that. So first, the shift happened where I begin to work with pain and begin to transform it. And then something else happened, which is I found joy. It started like one day. <laughs> I think I was 22 years old. I was sitting and then suddenly... I was in a state where I'm happy for no reason. And then I found that this joy like permeated my entire body. Mind-blowing. And then after a while, it just goes away. And I have no idea how to get it back. And then I just kept my practice, which is just mindfully become aware of my breath for what, 30 minutes or something. And then it came back and it disappeared. And then it came back with increasing frequency. And then later on, it became a skill. <laughs> it's like every time I sit, I can get back that joy on demand. Even though I could do it, I didn't know why. And so I started asking around the, the masters. And one of the masters gave me a beautiful explanation. He says, the default state of mind is joy. Therefore, when the mind is calm and clear, it returns to its default, which is joy. <laughs> There's no magic, no voodoo. <laughs> so I found that skill. And because I found that skill, I was able to bring out the joy in everything I do. And therefore, just cure me of my depression. So what you're saying to us is that the default mode of the mind is joy. Yes, the default state of mind is joy. The way we look at it in Buddhism, the Buddha say the mind is luminous, but it's defiled by defilements. The Buddhist way to look at it is like a piece of gold that's hidden, that's wrapped around with a cow dung. <laughs> so you look at it, it's just, it's just a piece of shit, like literally. But inside there's actually gold. And you don't have to create the gold. You don't have to earn it. It's already there. All you have to do is to wash away the cow dung. And it's the same with the mind. The mind is by itself already luminous, but it's afflicted on the outside with greed and hatred and ill will and anger. And so all you have to do is to wash those things away, at least temporarily, and you see the mind is in its own nature, which is the gold and the joy. To find that default state of joy, do you have to experience something like depression? And how were you able to do that? If you are depressed, are that two ways to go about it. One is to go out and one is to go in. And going outwards means, usually it means two things. Number one, it means to blame other people. <laughs> so, mm. so I'm very unhappy because of you. You did this to me, right? The second thing is to chase our pleasures of the flesh, alcohol, sex, whatever it is. And then you find that these things are not fulfilling. They're only fulfilling for about an hour. So if you do that route, you'll always be unhappy because I have no other choice. I went the inner route. And the inner route is covering that beyond all that cow dung, hatred, greed, delusion, there is that inner goal. And it turns out all you have to do is calm the mind down, like bring awareness to either the breath or the body and let the mind settle. Once it settles, all those defilements will become weaker and weaker. And if you do it enough, they weaken to a degree where you don't see them for a short while. And during that short while, the joy manifests. And then they go, oh my God, this is different. <laughs> How specifically do you train yourself to have emotional skills? We train it in three steps. And the first step is the ability to train the ability to calm the mind on demand. So bringing the mind to a calm and clear state on demand, which is, like I said, a skill that can be learned. And that skill is the foundation of all higher emotional and cognitive skills. Step two, building on attention training, we create the type of self-knowledge that leads to self-mastery. So how we feel and how we think. And then step three, develop social skills. And social skills means emo uh, empathy and compassion. So that's how we train emotional intelligence. 
We used to think that the brain stopped changing or growing in our early 20s, but that's not true, is it? Correct. It's a phenomenon called neuroplasticity. It is a phenomenon that was discovered fairly recently, like past 20, 30 years. And if you don't mind indulging me, I can tell a story of, of the first experiment. There was a group of scientists who wanted to test their assumption. So they wanted to find a population. So they're talking very loudly among themselves on an airplane. They said, like, how do we find a population you know, that does a specific task more than other people that we all understand? And as they were talking, there was a guy sitting next to them, a total stranger, <laughs> just says, London cabbies. And they're like, what? Say, yeah, yeah. It turns out that in order to have a license to drive a taxi in London, you have to memorize all 25,000 streets of London. So it takes about two or three years to train yourself to do that. So they did the research, they measured their brains, and they find that London cabbies have the part of brain that is relating to directions and spatial reasoning is bigger and more active than normal people. And the longer they've been driving a cab, the more true that is. And so that was the first experiment that established neuroplasticity. I was talking to Tricia this morning and I was telling her that I lean into negative thoughts and that I was trying to really work on having my default mode be more positive and immediately have a positive thought. But I find when I observe my mind that I go negative. Why is it that oftentimes we go negative? I think because it helps us to survive in the world. So I'll give you a very simple example. There are two monkeys and then the bush starts to move. And one monkey assumes that it's a tiger. Oh my God, we're all going to die. And then the other monkey assumes, ah, it's just a win. Which monkey is more likely to survive with offsprings? The first monkey, because it could actually be a tiger. So we are all like descendants of nervous monkeys. And not just nervous monkeys, we're all descendants of monkeys who think negatively. So our brains are structured to help us survive, not structured to help us be happy. Wow, that's a really great distinction. We all have negative bias. How do you counter this inherent negativity? I want to suggest three steps. The first step is what we talked about earlier. Find that calm and clear mind, and in that mind, find joy. Number two is to look for thin slices of joy. So when you're thirsty and you drink water, there is a moment lasting for about three seconds where you go, like, oh, this is good. The practice is if we pay attention to them, we find that these moments, they are like everywhere all the time. This morning when you met Trish, there's a moment, I'm so happy to see Trish, right? Oh, I have a car, right? So, oh, I just got from point A to point B without dying. <laughs> I so got on. out of bed, I'm alive. <laughs> I'm alive, yeah. But if you do this practice, the gratitude comes naturally because mm. there are so many gratitude moments in the day. Practice three is loving kindness, which is go around all day, just randomly like looking at people, just think in your mind, I wish for this person to be happy. Just by thinking, it changes your mood. You are going to love this story. So usually when I give a public talk, I'll say, okay, everybody spend 10 seconds just wishing for two random people in the audience to be happy without saying anything, without doing anything, just thinking. I wish for this person and that person to be happy. And then they did that. I did this on the, at Spirit Rock on a Monday. I told them, okay, tomorrow's a Tuesday. Tuesday's a working day. Tomorrow when you go to work, every hour on the hour, you spend 10 seconds wishing for two people outside the office to be happy without saying anything. See what happens. And then on Wednesday, I received an email from a total stranger. And this person, she says, she said, I hate my job. I hate coming to work every single day. But I did the exercise on Tuesday, and Tuesday was my happiest day in seven years. Wow. And what did it take? It took 80 seconds of thinking, not even doing. <laughs> and that, my friends, is the power of loving kindness. It's extremely powerful. How can we create a strong quality of attention? 
Oh, easy practice. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. So when you pay attention to your breath, there's a hundred percent probability that your attention will wander away. <laughs> and then if that happens, you bring it back. And bringing back a wandering attention is the equivalent of doing a bicep curl for your brain. Every time you do a bicep curl, you know your biceps get a little bit stronger. And if you do a lot of biceps curl, you have you no know, bulging muscles for the biceps. Every time you bring back your wandering attention, you are exercising the prefrontal cortex. And then if you do that a lot, then your power attention becomes very strong. Then you can become undistractable for a long time. And how long does it take for mindfulness to have an effect on the brain? When I started, I thought it was about 100 hours. And to my surprise, I, I read a research that according to that study, it was about 100 minutes. 100 minutes already can measure the impact scientifically. And then it gets better. Uh, there was a research done a bit later, 2013, I think it was at Wharton. I know, of all places, the business school. In this study, they did only 15 minutes of mindfulness. And they find that in 15 minutes, you can make better decisions. Can you talk about the qualities of the heart along with mental habits? I like to think of at least two things. Uh, one is kindness, a uh, loving kindness, and the other is compassion. And so, so the difference is loving kindness is defined as the wish for others to be happy. And compassion is the wish for others to be free from suffering. They're not the same thing. They have one small but really important difference. In order to have compassion, you need to, to see suffering. For compassion, I wish for you to be free from suffering means I'm seeing your suffering. It's actually quite hard, but it's also very rewarding. So compassion is a higher level. It's a kindness plus one. So the question is, are those trainable and how do you train them? First, it turns out they're trainable, which by itself is mind-blowing. The second part, also equally mind-blowing, is how to train them. It's just mental habits. I'll give you an example. Remember earlier we talked about loving kindness, like wishing for others to be happy? So imagine you do that a lot, and then you realize something. You realize that after a while, it becomes a mental habit. Every person you meet, just out of nowhere, just by habit, just think, I wish for this guy to be happy. Habit becomes personality. Personality becomes character. So it becomes you. So just by training a mental habit, you become a kind person. Ming, one time, I don't know if you remember this, Trisha and I went out to lunch with you and your family, and I once asked you how to get along with people in our lives that are difficult, and you told me about a practice that focused on three things that connect us. Can you expand on that? So the three things are this. So you, you deal with a difficult person. Oh, by the way, a lot of the time, that difficult person is somebody you're very close to. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sometimes a spouse, sometimes the in-law. So this is very hard, right? So if you're having problem at that moment with that person, I recommend bringing up three thoughts. And the first thought is this person is a human being just like me. So the second thought is this person wants to be happy just like me. And then the third thought is this person wants to be free from suffering just like me. The common thread is just like me. Right? So it works most of the time. A couple of years ago, there were a bunch of people doing a documentary where I was the main character. They interviewed people who say I changed their lives. And I, I didn't know this was happening. This was behind my back. When they were done, they told me and they said, call Omar. You have to talk to this guy. So I said, okay. And then so I got in contact with Omar. And Omar at that time, he was, uh, I think he was 16 years old, Egyptian boy. And he grew up hating the other side, hating the Jews, basically. And then he decided he no longer hates them. He now decided that even my enemy, they have a right to live. And then his outlook on life like radically changed. 
So he was no longer like a radical. And so I asked him, what specifically in the book that changed you? And he said it was just like me practice. He put the enemy in front of him, uh, in his mind. And the first thought, this, this is a human being just like me. And then he realized, wait a minute, even my enemies are human beings just like me. And so imagine if we have 100,000 or 1 million Omas in the Middle East on both sides, on all sides. That is going to change everything. That, my friends, is the power of this practice. How does being loved affect your life? I think the first thing in general is that being loved means we get to live. If our moms and dads or our parents didn't love us, we would have died as babies. That's the first thing. It's as simple as that. You probably already know about the research that says that babies and kids who are loved, it changes their brains in good ways and they become uh, more successful and happier as adults. There is one other effect, which is surprising to me. So when I was growing up, I was very clear that to be a leader, either you're loved or you are effective. You choose one or the other. So because to get things done, you need to be an asshole. That's what I thought. And the research was like conclusive. All other things equal. The effective leaders are the ones who love people and who want to be loved. Mm. And that made no sense to me. And then suddenly it's like it makes perfect sense in retrospect. There's a simple reason why that's true, which is that again, all things equal. The more your people love you, the harder they work for you. And the harder they work for you, the more successful you are as a leader. So all you do is genuinely love people. I have an example of somebody who I admire, who loves people, and is also tough. And that's why he's very successful. Somebody I haven't met, but I read about him in a book. His name is Dave Packard. Hewlett Packard, when they founded the company, it was like 1939 or something. And so they did revolutionary things for their time. They decided they'll trust employees and uh, treat them well. And it shows how much they love their people. HP was a great company for a long time. And there's something about Dave, which is his badass. <laughs> if any manager crosses an ethical line, Dave will personally fly over to that office and personally fire that guy. That's how badass he is. Wow. <laughs> and, and not one or the other. You're badass and you love people. Then you'll be very successful as a leader. Meng, I loved your book, Joy on Demand. We talked about it a little bit earlier, but what's the difference between joy and happiness? So for happiness, I use the definition used by uh, Matthew Ricard. I think you know him. He's, he's our common friend. He's known as the happiest man in the world. <laughs> and he defines happiness as this, as a deep sense of flourishing that arises from an exceptionally healthy mind. Not a pleasurable feeling, not a fitting emotion, not a mood, but an optimal state of being. And joy in contrast, joy is a pleasurable feeling. It is fleeting. It is in the moment. It is an emotion. The difference is happiness is a net effect over time of mental health and personal flourishing. The thing is, not every moment of a happy life or happy day is joyful. So, for example, if a happy day, but there's, there's some moment you spill your coffee, that wasn't joyful. <laughs> and the whole thing up is that, yeah, I had a happy day. But there's no such thing as a joyless happiness. So, therefore, joy is the building block to happiness. So, Ming, what book do you think everyone should read? I'm going to recommend two. So the first one is How to Win Friends and Influence People. Really old book, older even than me. And that book I read when I was a teenager. And I kind of put it out of my mind after that. But I found in retrospect, it has an insidious effect on me that changed, which basically changed how I think about things in a really good way. For every meeting, for example, before the meeting, the way I prepare it is how do I serve that person? The book, what it does, it shows you the power of having that thought. How do I serve them? first and foremost. And if you think of that a lot, that will give you success, basically. 
The other book I would recommend, which is entirely different flavor, entirely different topic, is Guns, Germs, and Steel. It gives you a sense of how much of civilization success has to do with accidents of geography. What would be your favorite quote? So the quote is is a Gandhi quote. What they're doing is not important. What is important is that you're doing it. I'll tell you the story that brings this quote home for me. It's in China, and it's a story of a military doctor. And he's a good doctor,、uh, cares about his patients a lot. After a while, he realized one thing. He realized that every time he heals a patient, one or two things happen to the patient. Either they come back later with other injuries, or they die in battle. And it keeps happening over and over. After a while, he's just obsessed with this question: If that's the case, why am I doing this? And that question obsessed him so much that he had a mental breakdown. Because of mental breakdown, he left the army. He spent three months in a Zen monastery with a master, and then he figured out the answer. After he figured the answer, he found peace. And he went back to the army and continued his work as a military doctor. So, what was the answer? So, remember the question. The question is, why am I doing this? The answer is because I'm a doctor. The reason I'm telling the story, I suspect that some last percentage of people hearing this podcast are people who are doing work to relieve suffering. My guess is that you will end up in that situation sooner or later, like the doctor. You will end up in despair, right? Because all you see is suffering. And worse than that, you look at your own work and you say. I just achieve nothing. <laughs> Every day I work, there's just more suffering and more suffering for other people. I went through the phase myself, and the answer is,、uh, is the Gandhi quote: "What I do is not important. What's important is that I'm doing it." That's really beautiful, Meng. You really are a jolly good fellow, and you spread joy wherever you go. We're just so happy you were able to be with us to spread joy for our listeners on Health Gig today. Thank you so much, Meng. Thank you so much, my friends. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha, and I'm Doro. Be well.